Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from RiffHard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and we'll always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Welcome to another episode of the Riff Hard podcast. We've got an incredible guest today, Mr. Wes Hauk, who is one of the best guitar players on earth, in my opinion. Uh, he's played with lots of bands you've heard of, including Black Crown Initiate, The Faceless, and Alluvial. Recently... He also was playing shows with uh, Devin Townsend until, you know, that got sidelined by coronavirus. But anyways, Wes is incredible and a super insightful guy. I loved this conversation. I introduce you to Wes Hauk. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Greetings. How you doing? Great. Very good. Welcome, Wes. We were just talking about life in the cave. I'm enjoying life in the cave. <laughs> you? Yeah, if your cave is fortified, you got you're you're good. It's a good place to be. Is yours fortified? Yeah, for the most part. I don't know if it's as fortified as Brown's or yours, but I mean, I've got all the stuff that you know keeps me happy here. It's kind of cool. Like whenever you get on these video chats with another musician, you get to see their environment and their lighting and stuff like that. Like Brown has a really nice light up keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's from my addiction to Rocket League. I didn't even notice that you had a really nice light-up keyboard that changes colors. Yeah. It's pretty nice. It's because I'm on a PC, you see. That's what it is. They got to make up for how shitty the computer <laughs> is with like lights that distract you. Hey, man, it's doing a good job. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I know. And they distract you even more when they put really cool, fancy lights inside the computer itself. I've also done that as well. Yeah. All over there. That's what I'm saying. Yep. <laughs> the one thing that I do like about the PC format, though, that I've seen is for a super long time, I thought that it would be cool to have a computer in a rack case like that fit in like a 19 inch rack case. And in the PC world, they do have that. Apple had something similar a few years ago, but it was called the X-Serve. And it was like, you know, wildly overpowered for anything that I would be using it for, you know, like it was a server. So like if I did build a PC, I would absolutely put it in some bitch and rack case and have lights in it too. <laughs> I've had three rack mounted PCs before I switched over and never looked back. And they looked really cool. 
But they did the same thing that PCs always do, which is run great for the first two months. And then within five months, blue screen all over the place and just crap out and die and not let you do anything. But I don't actually hate PCs. My opinion is if you like to tinker with shit, get a PC. If you just want it to work, get a Mac. That's it. Yeah. It probably blue screened for you from all the porn you watched. That was on my work computer, dude. <laughs> I, have a, I have a personal computer upstairs. <laughs> you know, you got to keep work and personal separate. Yeah, you say that, but you got to entertain yourself when the guitar player's done like five million takes and you're bored. In the same room? Yeah, of course. All right, we're not going there. <laughs> let's, uh, let's stay away from that. That's a studio practice you can keep to yourself. Ah, oh, thank you. No, it's kind of like cars too. Like, you know, some people want to fuck with every little detail. Some people just want to turn it on and go. I just want to turn it on and go. I drank the Mac Kool-Aid. I'm in their ecosystem for sure. But the only thing is, is like, I'm a hobbyist engineer at best, but like my needs have sort of grown, you know, and like to get a machine that would be super, I mean, anything close to what Brown has, we're looking at a lot of money. I think Brown was telling me the other day he and specs time. something up. Yeah. Brown specs something out the other day and he said it was 55 grand. <laughs> that was for the top of the range spec Mac. Yeah. That was for the Mac. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for the, I mean, even on PC, that's still going to be like 20, 30K or something like that. I mean. I just got a new Mac mini, my streaming rig that I'm on now. URM just got it. It's fully specced out. It was $2,800. Which I know is more than some people want to spend on a computer, but I think $2,800 for something that works and will work for years that I don't have to like sit there and tweak every little last component of and like make sure that the video card is compatible with the audio drivers and that like my keyboard isn't going to crash Pro Tools and like all that <laughs> dumb shit. I feel like time is money. It's better for it to, just to work. But I've watched your videos like you definitely record stuff. It seems to me like and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like the priority for you is to just be able to get your ideas down and get it done rather than sit there and fuck around with it the whole time. Just like any one of you. I started learning how to record, I guess, a little over 10 years ago, just out of necessity because I, you know, I just wanted to like record songs and just like everybody else, I had a bunch of stuff that sounded really terrible for a long time. And <laughs> the whole recording thing, you could say it was a consumer industry when like either of us were growing up. I mean, I'm sure I recorded on a Fostex four track and stuff like that, but it wasn't like it is now where there's a ton of resources for learning how to do it and why things generally sound good or bad and how to use tools. And, you know, of course, with URM and all that other stuff, you can go on some Facebook group and find a fucking 11 year old kid talking about side chaining and <laughs> that shit just wasn't a thing in 1996. You know, it just wasn't that that didn't happen. I've gotten to a point now where as far as like my mixes for demoing stuff or like making content, I think are good enough to be functional to put out into the world. I'm still a hobbyist when it comes to, you know, the whole recording thing. I've heard hobbyists, stuff that sounds way, way worse. Do you think that that's kind of a requirement for a modern guitarist to like have a, I'd say a passable level of recording ability? 
I'd say it's been that way for over a decade now. Like, you know what I mean? If you're going to be a functioning member of some band or, um, you know, anything that's sort of required of you. Yeah. You got to have, you got to be able to record pretty well. And nowadays you got to kind of know what the fuck you're doing with video. Like it's, it's, it's not just being able to play guitar. And I'd say what I do is like kind of a little bit every day because I don't like when I have a bunch of learning stuff that takes away from time with me, like playing guitar and, you know, keeping my shit on the up with guitar. But yeah, like I do a little bit every day, watch some video, watch something and learn how to do something every day, you know, as like, as opposed to, okay, I'm going to spend this whole week learning how to set up a drum mix or something. So you don't let yourself go down the rabbit hole on purpose. Every once in a while I do. Like, for instance, I watched Julian's Logic Advanced course, you know, and I learned a bunch of shit about Logic that I never knew. And I've been using Logic forever. So, like, I've definitely, every once in a while I'll go deep in it. But, yeah, like, I do it in chunks, I guess. I think that's a smart move. I got to say something about that Logic course. It proved me wrong. I used to think that you couldn't edit drums well in Logic, and he kind of proved that you actually could, which made everything that I've said for the past five years about Logic obsolete, basically. Yeah, I I guess, you know, as far as the slip sort of editing and all that other stuff, like it's not like it is in Pro Tools, at least not like I've seen. Granted, like I'm only saying that because I've seen what John can do in Pro Tools. Okay, yeah. John's on another level, though. John right. Douglas is, like, the grandmaster. Yeah, I mean, I've seen him do stuff that, like, visually line something up before hearing it. And, you know, I don't think you can do that in Logic. It's not that thing. It's almost sort of like... I love, I love the comping engine in Logic. I also, you know, I love it for writing and demoing stuff. You know, it just kind of lends itself to that. It seems like, anyway... Like guys like Jeff Dunn and like Drew Folk, those guys are on Cubase. Brown, you're on Cubase too, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm a. I originally started on Cubase, so I just kind of got used to it, and that's kind of why I always stuck with it. I've obviously tried Logic and Pro Tools over the years, and just found that for what I need to do, Cubase just kind of fit the bill a little bit better. But also, you got to remember that Logic and Cubase only introduced those editing drum features, like fairly recently in comparison to Pro Tools AL. So you were probably correct at one point with your statement about Logic. Yeah, I know I was correct at one point. (laughs) Shit evolves. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, Pro Tools only just got folder tracks this year, I think. And that's been a feature in Cubase for at least a decade. Yeah, see, the thing is that when I started URM, I was mixing and working with bands all the time. And so I was up on all the DAWs because I was always doing that stuff but you know your focus shifts i guess it's the same thing like you said about guitar versus recording you can't let yourself go too far down the recording rabbit hole because you don't want to sacrifice the guitar playing with running urm it's interesting because i gotta know what the daws do but i can't go down the rabbit holes i used to be able to because i have to be running stuff how many hours do you still play of guitar a day so, like, especially since this whole thing happened. By the way, uh, it's uh, just for everybody listening well into the future. It's May 27th, 2020, in the middle of COVID. Enter the COVID. I was on a tour that got canceled in March, you know, as a result of everything. And I came home, and I've been teaching over Skype for about six years. 
I'm teaching more right now than I have in a long time. So I'd say like, as far as practicing goes for my own practice right now, with the amount I'm teaching, I get in about three, maybe four hours a day. I'll try to get like two and a half hours in the morning before I start teaching. Cause I'm usually trying to gather some ideas for guys that I'm teaching. And then when I get done, which is usually like on certain days around like seven o'clock at night, then I'll go upstairs. I actually have certain spots in the house where I like practice certain things. I know that sounds neurotic, but like in my room, that's really smart. I have a, an acoustic guitar and that's where I'm doing like, that's where I'm working on like triad inversions and stuff like that. And then when I'm on the couch, that's when I practice technique. And then when I'm down here, it's sort of like everything. I guess to answer your question, like three, four hours a day myself when I'm teaching this much. But I have a theory that if you want to make big jumps and kind of retain information and then I guess technique, you kind of got to get like six to eight in a day to make a big jump. And especially if you're going to like get ready to go out and play a bunch of music. Yeah, around the six, six hour mark. You know, it's interesting because I know of so many players, they started with the eight hours a day you know, till they were like 23 and then gradually went less and less and less. And then it's like an hour a day here and there. And I think that they're mostly focused on maintenance more than anything, but it sounds like you're still obviously trying to, to sharpen the blades always and keep making jumps. Sharpen the blades. That's the name of a Doth song, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't mean to say that, but it is. <laughs> to be totally honest with you, a few years ago, I just got really, like, I, I was pretty unhappy with my playing. And um, it happened because I was playing a show and I was playing a solo and I broke a string. And as a result, I started realizing that I wasn't really even paying attention to, for those listening, the way that I kind of work on stuff now is that like I'm viewing triad and triad inversions in different spots. And what happened was I broke a string and I could no longer see that triad. So then I was totally fucked. Instead of being able to like get around the problem, I realized that I was like reciting things essentially. Like I would rehearse something and be able to play it. But if you took something away from it, I didn't, I was fucked. You know what I mean? Like if for the most part, like that disappointed me. In myself, I was like, I want to be an orator, not a reciter. So I've spent like a lot of time retooling, you know, I've always been a fan of getting into harmony, but I guess I, one point or another, because I was joining all these bands and learning their back catalog of music, that I stopped kind of working on my shit, which would apply to everything. And that is something that I've just dove super hard into for the last three years that I haven't really been touring all that much. And technique things that I've worked out, a lot of stuff with, you know, that I was having problems with tension. Like body tension? Yeah. I've come to find that most of my problems when it comes to reaching some sort of goal for a BPM, you know what I mean? Like playing something fast. The difference between me being able to play four bars of something fast as opposed to being able to play it continuously was me having tension, whether that was like eventually gripping the pick very hard or like having tension in my shoulder and stuff like that. So a lot of my beginning of my day right now starts out with me 
like I'll just sit there and start the metronome at like 135 and I'll play 16th notes on every string as soft as I can. Make sure that they're like equal in volume and nice and subdivided. But like I'm sitting there like almost meditating in a way. I'm almost like if I find tension in my shoulder, in my arm, in my fucking like thumb or whatever, I'm like on the fly trying to accept it and let go of it. You know what I mean? Because I've built these bad habits and you see it too. It's probably a result of all of us watching like badass music videos when we were kids where dudes just look like they're fucking hammering their guitars and stuff. We're like, <laughs> all right, that's how you got to do it, man. That's how you, you got to really just fucking nail it. And we didn't know that they were actually not playing. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's actually a really good example of this that happened to uh, the Monuments drummer, Mike. He had no idea what triggers were. So he was trying to hit his drums as hard as fucking possible and then ended up injuring himself. From it. So I think it's like a valuable thing to actually pay attention to tensions. Oh, yeah. Just in any instrument that you play with. On that note, drummers are typically celebrated for being hard hitters. You hear that shit all the time. Oh, man, he fucking hits hard. Like, you hear that when people are, you know, talking about a revered drummer. And I think the case is, you know, I think there's a threshold for how hard you can hit a drum until it becomes a problem. But yes, hitting a drum harder for this style of music is great. There's a fucking fine line for that when it comes to playing guitar because you want to be able to have it sound uniform in velocity and volume and sound like it's played aggressively. But obviously, like, you know, if you fucking hit it too hard and your pick angle is pretty extreme, it's going to sound like shit. And then, of course, things are going to be out of tune and stuff. So I'd say being observant of that, too, because there's a lot of time that I can be real heavy handed. And I had to I just kind of, you know, like I said, this is all shit that I've thought about and worked through for a while because I was pretty unhappy with it. I always felt my biggest problem with getting better was every time that I would start to make a ton of progress, the physical pain threshold would kick in. And I never really figured out a way to counter that. What you're doing is probably the way to counter that. It would always hit a certain BPM and then the arms would just start burning and it'd just be like, fuck, can't go faster than this. Probably should have done what you did or are doing. Another epiphany, I guess, about this is like when it comes to solving a problem with playing, whether it's looking at harmony, viewing a fretboard, looking at how everything works together and on the technical side of, you know, playing, it's important to pay attention to the shit that you already know. For instance, like if you can fucking sit there and go like knock on a door that fast, you can play 16th notes, like first thing in the morning. You know what I mean? Like you should be able to. And anything that's going to get in the way of that is you being tense. You know what I mean? Like you anticipating failure. And that's sort of like in a weird way, you kind of see it with anyone. Like if you're about to do something that you're not entirely sure of, you know, your instinct is to tense up. And what's that shit that they say about like drunk drivers usually surviving car accidents because they're totally loose? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you, they do say that. Yeah. And I mean, that's my sort of rationale for like thinking of it that way. It's like being able to play fast is, you know, like it's, let's put it this way. It's not going to feel awesome. You know what I mean? In most cases, it's not going to feel like the most comfortable thing ever, but it shouldn't hurt and it shouldn't cause you to like gasp real, real fast. You know, like it should be, you know, something that, feels like you're definitely using your body, but it's not, it, you know, like the 
uniformity and volume and velocity when it comes to picking or any sort of left-hand thing is generally like some sort of gripping the pick too hard, tensing up your shoulder, locking up your arm and letting go of those things, I guess, as you start out your day. I actually think that some of that stuff is definitely in your head as well. As you were saying before, if you feel like you go into it thinking, I'm going to be tense now whenever I do this part, then automatically you've set yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. So I think like part of it is also just in your mind, just saying, releasing all of that negativity that you already have towards a part, which I think is a good way to, you know, like how you sit there on your sofa just playing at 135 beats per minute in a different room in a different environment is actually a good way to sort of expel all that negativity that you might have as well. Just doing it in different environments. Brown, how do you go about hitting so fucking hard and not hurting yourself? I'm angry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's just, again, it's like everyone's built slightly differently, right? Like the way that our muscles are. That's why I kind of never really tell anyone how to hold a pit because it's so personal. We're all built ever so slightly differently. And the way that I hold a pick might be uncomfortable to someone else. It's like, you have to find the point where your muscles are using the least amount of resistance, you know, like how we, you know, when your hands are in the neutral position, how your thumbs behind your second finger and stuff like that. It's just feel making it so that whatever you're doing, there's no tension there at the point of origin. You hit hard as fuck though. Yeah, but it's still not as hard as I could go because that would take the string out of tune. So it's again, it's just finding the point, that very, very fine line that Wes was talking about where you can hit too hard and you cause too much tension versus hitting it well for you and making sure that it sounds good. That's ultimately the the end goal, isn't it? Just because I hit that hard doesn't mean it's, you know, someone else is going to do the same thing. That's just what works for me. That's what I found that worked for me. This is one thing that I, I mean, in Brown, you'd probably say this, you'd, you'd probably say this too. Like a lot of times, especially with guys that I teach when they're playing at a tempo that I'm making them play at a tempo that they're maybe unsure of or haven't done before. And I can physically see them start to grip their pick really hard. And like, I think that this is something that we naturally do because we think that gripping the pick harder is going to prevent it from slipping around in our fingers, which is like, like, honestly, it's the opposite of that. The the harder that you're gripping the pick, the more like shock you're transferring to it. So it's going to move around more. Whereas like, I try to show guys like, look, like if you're holding a fucking pick, that's like 0.88 or greater, you're holding something that you could like a prisoner could sharpen into a fucking weapon, right? You could kill someone with this pick. So in a sense, it has its own weight and its own inertia. So feel what it's like for that to pass through the string rather than collide with it. And then, like, from there, you're sort of like, in a. it's similar to how a drummer would do a double stroke roll, getting two six-seat notes out of one hand. Obviously, we're not doing that with a pick, but, like, that level of, like, pressure that you're holding the pick with like its only function is to pick the string you're not gonna get more tone out of it by squeezing it harder you're not gonna you know what i mean like it's like so you can the act of picking at like the ideal velocity for me has gone from being like something where i felt like i had to grip harder to when i feel warm and toasty and i'm playing you know like i guess the fastest that i can i feel like i'm just holding it enough to where it doesn't scoot around between my thumb and my forefinger. 
I'd completely agree. I think the problem that people think about is that the power is actually coming from their wrists and fingers when in actuality it's coming from the forearm all the way up to your shoulder. Yeah. And you don't need to press the pick hard. It's one thing that I consistently say to people, just don't press these two fingers together, your thumb and your first finger. The moment that you start doing that, you've created the first element of tension, which you just don't need. It's not required to hit harder. If anything, it's just causing the muscles in your wrist to potentially get RSI and carpal tunnel. That's what it's doing. To use the drummer analogy, I totally agree that some drummers hit too hard. I think more important than hitting hard, it's about consistency and hitting properly. Sounds like that's what you guys are saying too, that it's not about beating the living fuck out of the guitar. It's about hitting it exactly right in a way that you can actually consistently sustain. Yeah, I think it's very odd. There's this video, I'll have to dig it up sometime, but there's this video of Chick Corea. He's just playing, doesn't look like he's playing like overly hard, but you can tell it's just like, it's just perfect. You know what I mean? Like his velocity and his his uniformity and volume. And he ends up breaking a key somehow and he's not even hitting it hard. And I call that like, it's a weird, I have this friend we were talking about. It's like, I'm not a Star Wars guy, but like, that's what I call the force. It's like <laughs> this thing that you can't really put your hand on. Cause like you could, like a motherfucker could go up and just jump on a piano and not break a key. But if you're just like sitting there and you're just like totally dialed and everything like that, you might just like accidentally break a fucking key because this force that you're wielding is like, you know, like kind of builds up and then you, you know, something fucking breaks because it's too awesome. (laughs) (laughs) The awesomeness breaks it. I want to go back to something you said earlier that I thought was interesting. You about when you broke the string and it tripped you up. That whole idea of being an orator and not a reciter is not very common in uh, heavy music. Most people in heavy music are all about playing what's written the way it was written, not about being able to, I guess, it's not exactly improvising what you were saying, but being able to completely adjust on the fly like that, that's not really a normal part of the metal vocabulary, I think. So specifically what it was, it was, I was playing one of my songs live and there's a solo that Marty Friedman did on it. And I was playing his solo. And like, I guess if I had broken a string during my solo part, I knew what the chords were. You know what I mean? I was paying attention to the chords were. So if I broke a string during that part, I guess I wouldn't have been as fucked. But during his part, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on harmonically when I learned it. And when I broke a string, I was on fuck street because I wasn't like looking at triads and I wasn't looking at like where everything was in a spot. And it, I, I got very disappointed in myself. I was like, this is bullshit. You're like 33 years old and you need to really get your shit together if you want to do this. And like, I'd say with metal music, right? Harmony is sort of the metal guitar player's Achilles heel. Like you... We go down this rabbit hole of, you know, technique and and picking and tone and stuff like that. Like, you know, we start out like for me, it was wish you were here. And then I learned uh, say it ain't so like pretty much everything off that that Weezer record, the blue one. And like you learned a lot of like nut position chords and bar chords and stuff like that. And then I go went, you know, like to a friend's house over the summer who had all the Sepultura and the Anthrax and the Pantera and Metallica stuff. And once I went down that like. 
you know, everyone's story is kind of the same. You fall in love with it so hard because it's so exciting. But then at one point or another, you don't understand harmony beyond like the third, like beyond the triad. You don't understand what a seventh chord is and beyond. And I guess about 15 years ago, I started to feel real left out on that. So I spent a good amount of time trying to get into that world. And at the very least, not sort of like, I sort of try to like play jazz you know, with metal, but I guess being able to have a command of harmony. I kind of tell this to students all the time. Theory doesn't really make you write emotionally effective music, right? Like what it does, like life experience, dust on your boots and shit like that is what makes you write emotionally effective music. But having command of theory puts names on sounds so you know how to recall them. Like in the same way that none of us have memories from the ages of zero to four years old, because the way our brain creates memories is with a vocabulary. We didn't have vocabulary. So if I can tell someone, hey, this is, you know, Lydian dominant. This is a dominant chord with a sharp four or whatever. And like, once you have a name to call it, then you fucking hear it. And then you're like, you know what I'm saying? Then there's this connection where it becomes part of your bag of tools rather than it being this, oh, that's a mysterious sound. I don't really understand it, you know, and then you can use it. I think that's a good thing, actually, because uh, I actually talk about this to students a lot because I always sort of explain how theory can get in the way sometimes if you learn it in the in the wrong context. And I actually think you got the nail on the head there. It's learning the different sounds and applying that to a, a set of words or a set of sort of, um, what's the word, instructions, like how you were saying about, you know, Lydian dominant, and that has a sort of sound to it. And I think that's a big problem in metal is that a lot of guitar players don't really understand the difference between the sounds of the modes and the sounds of the scales and what's achievable within that sort of sound. Because obviously metal is predominantly minors and Phrygians and Phrygian dominants. <laughs> I think metal players tend to learn the patterns yeah patterns of the modes the patterns of different scales they'll learn them in positions but i don't think that they typically go beyond just the physical recreation of those concepts like not to the point where they actually understand how it all works together and i guess what it represents just to extend what wes said as well it's like the i guess it's interval training in a in a way it's like understanding how this note relates to this note within this scale and how that sounds or a certain chord sequence with this part of the scale and how that would sound over it or how does this relative scale sound over this part and stuff like that and that, I think that's like the theory of understanding that Wes spent so long trying to understand is, is that what you say you focused on? Yeah I think with metal too I mean let's the metal that you all three of us were reared on wasn't particularly astute harmonically. Nope. <laughs> if we're talking about, you know, Metallica and Pantera and and Sepultura, like, this wasn't... No, it was just cool. It was just cool. That's it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> nowadays, you have revocation where you're going to, like, you know, we have altered dominant chords and, like, thrash metal stuff. And then, you know, obviously, Tosin and Javier, like, and everyone's got a lot of hip sounds. And I don't think this was... I think the metal player now is like sort of they're trying to chase these sounds, but don't have the legwork, I guess, in the sense to understand harmony in the macro vision. And for me and the way I teach this most of the time is starting with the triad, you know, and if you 
kind of look at Wayne Krantz and Jimmy Herring and like really anyone who's a real orator, you know, the guys out there who are just bad to the fucking bone. These dudes are all like, you know, they got their triad game on lock. And I think that you're totally right that generally metal guys are looking at the scale like it's this thing that they can blaze through rather than looking at the mode as a family of chords. Once you start seeing it like that, then it's just a better way to live on guitar, I think, you know? So I have a question about that because bringing up the style of metal that we were reared on, you're correct. It sometimes wasn't even in a key, really, right? It was just... (laughs) The closest thing to a key was whatever the lowest string was tuned to. And there's still some of that element in metal. But honestly, sometimes that keyless stuff sounds awesome. Like uh, those chromatic riffs and just riffs that make no harmonic sense but are just badass. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, yeah, totally. How do you balance that with this intense harmonic knowledge? Because sometimes what I've noticed, and just tell me if you've noticed this too, the two don't necessarily always mesh together. Like sometimes you got to throw the proper stuff out the window and just play the fucking sick chromatic keyless riffs. Absolutely. I mean, back to that thing I was saying, like, I don't think that a command of harmony on its own is going to help you write emotionally effective music. I mean, granted, that's another thing to talk about. Like if your goal is to write some music that's going to make a motherfucker go like, I felt like that before, you know what I mean? Without even listening to the lyrics, like something that just hits you, you know, that can be the intro riff to that second song on black gives way to blue. Check my brain that don't like that bendy, like, you know, Cantrell riff or yeah, that shit's so cool. It could be that. I mean, it just, it could be something that literally isn't cordial at all. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, you're totally right in that. What I think makes something badass in a lot of cases for someone is that it's emotionally effective. That comes from sonics and I guess conviction. In most cases, like I tell people, I guess if I'm writing music, rarely, if ever, have I ever sat down and been like, hmm, I'm going to, you know, try to write something like in this type of chord quality or whatever. It usually starts with some sort of something. And then I've used theory on the back end to sort of figure out what it was. Yeah, I think that's the most effective way. And the first thing is always it's like, oh, wow, this sounds cool. And it's kind of it's 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 making me feel something. I think that's like kind of how I would write as well. Get a sequence of a couple of notes and it kind of gives me a backbone or a rough idea of where it could go in terms of the theory. Like, you know, it gives you sort of certain informations about the scale or the mode that you could be in rather than letting the mode at the beginning define where you have to go. Because I think that sort of puts you into a toxic box, so to speak, (laughs) for a lot of people anyway. Well, for me, it did anyway. I can tell you my Berkeley experience. That's what I noticed with so many players. It's one of the reasons I wanted to get out of there was I felt like they were taking the harmonic stuff, all the theory stuff, all the stuff that they were learning as the starting point rather than just a communication method or a vocabulary, really. They weren't starting from that place that we're talking about of, yeah, this shit sounds cool. They were starting from a place of, 
Let's try writing something in this key with this type of chordal quality to it, uh, which never really made good music. There's a merit for sure to like immersing yourself in music academia, for sure. There's some shit that you will get from that. But I mean, I guess it's like, what's that whole Carl Sagan thing? Is that like science would be complete? incomplete without religion and vice versa or whatever, you know? It's like, I guess the music side, the academia side of music would be incomplete without life experience to employ it. Well, without the art side. Right. So speaking of marriage of two elements, uh, you mentioned that you kind of like lead guitar as an ornament as opposed to like a fully integrated piece of music. Can you talk a little bit about how the interplay of lead and rhythm work in your mind? Obviously, I love lead guitar, man. The format that I enjoy it most in is like the three and a half minute to four and a half minute, like action packed song. And there's lead guitar for 30 to 45 seconds. And of course, the application of it in full on instrumental music is is different, right? Like, you know, it certainly calls for more lead guitar. Um, but as far as, at least for me, like if there's going to be two or three solos that are going to take up, you know, two minutes of time, I better be writing a song that's as good as fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's got to be that good. Otherwise, it's an ornament. It's sort of like a song within a song. At least that's what I try to do with a solo. Like it's got to be like purposeful. It's got to serve the song, right? Yeah. Yeah. The best solos are like little contained pieces of music, I think, like Hotel California, Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, I much prefer those types of solos over just some dude fucking showing us how fast he is. I mean, I love the fast shit too, man. It's killer. I think it's cool if it makes sense musically. Yeah. I mean, and I would bet a hundred bucks that over probably two thirds of the world's population could sing you the fucking Bohemian Rhapsody solo. Like, I bet you there's some kid in China that could sing you the Bohemian Rhapsody solo. That's, I guess, the goal is, right? Yeah, having a song within a song. And, like, again, I want to make it clear that instrumental music, like, the function is different, right? You know what I mean? It's acting more as a voice. It's got to be a feature set, you know? But, like, in the in the band format, I guess, you know, the fronted band format, it's got to be an, an ornament. Where does the extreme technique then fall? If that's kind of like your ideal, a solo like that, that some kid in China could just sing, where does the focus on that intense technique fall into that vision? Because like, for instance, you could be a Matt Bellamy from Muse, who's not the most technical player, but his solos are fucking awesome too, but he's not, you know... Obviously, he didn't go down the technical rabbit hole. Like, where, do, where does that fit in for you artistically? Technique is speech therapy. That's what I tell everyone that I teach to. So, like, when I say this right now, when I use this as an example, I'm not making fun of anyone who may have a lisp or some sort of speech no, impediment. I, I know what you mean. But what I mean is that 
like Mel Gibson, right? He went to a speech therapist to get rid of his accent, right? When he came to be an actor in America, except for like, what's that fucking movie that he was in? The like series? Crocodile Dundee? No, before kidding. that, the one where it's like a no, I'm desert. Just he was Mad in Crocodile Max. Dundee. Mad Max, that's what it is, right? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. He's got an Australian accent in that, but working on technique is sort of like getting rid of your lisp and your, you know, to sound, sound like you've got your shit, like, command of the language and then the chords and stuff like that those that's the language and the technique part is like the speech therapy that's what it is to me that's a good analogy actually yeah it's kind of like perfecting what you already know kind of to a degree with the technique because obviously you've been doing it that's how we learn to play guitar but it's just like those little increment movements to make everything just that little bit better Make it repeatable. Make it something that you can, like, trust, right? Because, like, how many fucking times have you been in a van for, like, eight hours and you got to the show late and you got to, like, get ready in 45 minutes? And technique is this thing that you kind of, like, have built trust in to where, like, if you have a guitar in your hands for 30 minutes, you're going to be able to sound like you know what you're doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's also kind of the platform that allows your creativity to take off from if you're if you're worried or unable to really get what's in your head out through your hands it's just going to be a detriment you're not going to be able to fulfill any artistic potential without just having it be doable easily doable like from where you think it and then you can just do it yeah it's weird because like there's so much great information about it now. When all three of us were growing up, there were no shortage of crappy, glossy page guitar magazines that told us to like do this exercise and then, you know, everything else is going to be great. But like there was no like follow through on the quality control of the exercise or how something was going to be done. So like the finer points, I recommend anyone who's like super wants to sort of take a look at their alternate picking stuff to check out the Troy Grady shit. It's it's. It's crazy how deep he's gone. He even talks to physicians and, you know, talks about like you know, people who really know the the inner workings of, you know, your physiology as it comes to like your wrist and your hand and your shoulder and like your ability to, you know, rotate your entire wrist, you know, in a 360 degree motion. And I should add that a lot of the stuff with tension that I observe sort of came from watching that shit, too. I think that like just to jump back with Marty Friedman when I was saying that there's no real correct way that you hold a pick. I think that's a perfect example of that. So if you look at his <laughs> yeah. wrist. What is up with how he holds a pick? Hey, he sounds fucking great. Let him hold the pick however he fucking wants. <laughs> oh, I am. I'm totally letting him. Him and Steve Morse though. Yeah. Steve Morse has got probably arguably the strangest one. I don't understand. He holds it with like two fingers and there's like a, there, yeah, it's very odd. Okay. So we grew up in the same era. So I'm sure you worshiped him the way that I did. When learning a Marty Friedman solo, what goes into doing it justice to where you don't want to kill yourself, basically? <laughs> I'll give you a prime example. Akai used to make this thing called the Riffomatic, and you hooked up like a disc band or a CD player or anything to it, and you would record 13 seconds of audio. So, like, you'd have to like coordinate, like, pressing this button and like starting on this certain spot on the CD and then like recording it and then getting mm -hmm. it back. So, I would like, that's how I learned, you know, any kind of metal stuff growing up. I think I started doing that when I was about 15. Um, I saved up and got one of those Akai things and um, 
I learned the Symphony of Destruction solo. And, like, the run, like, that that wild sequence run for as a kid. The one at the end? No, it's the one that starts on probably bar eight, you know, like, of the solo and goes into the whole B part section of the solo. It's a minor seven flat five arpeggio, sequenced. And when I was a kid, I was like... Oh my God, he's fucking brilliant. What is this? You know what I mean? Like, I didn't understand, like, you know, like the harmony behind it and why it worked. But I remember, like, you know, whatever it was when I started, like, getting in, I was like, oh, that's all that is, you know? So, how did I go about learning it? I guess, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is just like, that's one thing. I didn't have MTV when I was a kid. I didn't really like it's This is weird. This is a weird, funny thing. I didn't have my parents, we had like cable, but. MTV wasn't included. So like when I started listening to metal, even when I started listening to like, you know, the early like fat records, like punk, like Lagwagon and no effects and propaganda and shit. Like I always, you know, when I was hearing this aggressive guitar, I had this like weird premonition of what headbanging looked like. I was like, this shit's so awesome. I bet they're doing that. You know what I mean? I bet they're fucking, they're banging their heads. And then one time I saw the Metallica one video when I was like 15 or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, I was right. And they, That's what they're doing. They're fucking headbanging. But, um, I guess before that I was like, when it comes to like muting and like how the pick angle is and shit like that, it was just sort of paying attention to the way it sounded. That's really interesting, man, because nowadays people totally do it through visual cues. I mean, I know they'll pull it into a DAW and slow it down, but they'll also go and watch playthroughs and all that stuff. You did it 100% just by experimenting with hand position and all those things we've been talking about until it sounded right, basically. Well, I had a really great teacher, like the first two, three years I was playing guitar. Great, great teacher, Rich Severson. He's like a dad, like another dad to me. But um, like when I got into metal, he was like, dude, I don't really know anything about this. And he handed me Troy Stettner's Speed Mechanics for Lead Guitar. I don't know if you know about that book. Yeah, I, I did that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He handed me that book. And then, like I said... I just started learning songs, you know, like I, I tell people that too, for also for anyone listening and like wanting to like, what should I practice? There's fucking zero wasted time in learning songs. Like you have a practical application for, you know, how songs are put together. You kind of learn about arrangements. Also, you know, a song that you could play with someone else. And it's just, you know, like there's a saying, whatever that saying is, you play something a thousand times. It belongs to you. Not legally, but like it's part of it. You know what I mean? You go play the Symphony of Destruction solo a thousand times, it's yours. You know, like you can use parts of that for your shit, you know, whatever. Also, I guess after playing it a thousand times, you'd also have your slight own twist to it at that point as well. Yeah. Correct. It's always been interesting to me to hear the twist that the Megadeth lead guitar players take on Marty's solos. And it just kind of brings up the idea that I've always thought that it's really dumb to try to imitate anybody because it's technically impossible. Same with mixing. You can't like download somebody's template and have a mix sound like theirs because you don't have their brain. And same with uh, when you're learning somebody's guitar parts, you could learn the No More Tears solo and play it a thousand times and you're still not going to sound like Zach. Right. 
just not going to happen. You can get close, but it's that last like 5%, I think, which I think comes to the, to the word soul or just that person's feel. You can get pretty close to it, but you can never completely imitate it. I've never seen anyone sound exactly like someone else. Yeah. It's funny you brought this up. Just popped in my head. Phil X did this video the other day. And I mean, obviously Phil X is fucking, he's a stone cold killer, but <laughs> he was playing. I'm the one Van Halen like that whole like shuffle, you know, in the intro, that a flat shuffle. And he was like, dude, I've been playing this my whole life and I can't nail Eddie's feel on that shuffle. And like, he's like, I can play a shuffle and it sounds like, but it doesn't sound quite like that. And I mean, yeah, that's, who knows if it's down to physiology or soul or whatever, but yeah, that's your total. I totally agree. You can go kind of chasing someone's approach in their hands and yeah, it's going to be party. It's going to be great. But like go into the buffet, you know, grab a lot of stuff and spend time with it. Digest it. <laughs> I mean, it, it goes to riffs as simple as walk or back in black. I still haven't heard anyone be able to pull those off and make them sound like the real thing. And those are simple as shit. Do you reckon it's down to like the fact that the person that wrote it didn't try per se to sound like something they just kind of did it whereas when it comes to someone trying to do it it's like a different mindset almost yes all right like Soundgarden you have Chris Cornell who's basically it's basically like Led Zeppelin Chris Cornell's like Robert Plant but he sings lower right you know what I mean he's got a lower voice and then Buzz Osborne playing guitar, right? So you have like the Melvins and you know what I mean? Like, but like, it's like a different tone. There's different technology. There's up-to-date technology. So then as a result, the shit that comes out of the other end of the pipe, you know, it's bubbled in the cauldron enough to where the result is new. Yeah, that makes sense. More influences, different life experiences. It's just going to come out differently and also different ears. It's just like, it's the same with mixing. Mixing, it's thousands of micro decisions going towards making it sound a certain way. And if you don't have that person's brain, you can't recreate them. You can recreate some of the moves, but you can't recreate the context in which they made those moves exactly. And it's the same. You can't recreate the context that somebody else wrote something in because you're not that person. You're not in that time and place. I think all writing is not just the person, but it's also time and place. Five minutes later, something completely different could have come out. Capturing a moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever think about that when you've written something badass that if you had just taken a phone call for 10 minutes, sat down to write, maybe nothing cool would have happened? Absolutely. I, I mean, I'll take it one step further and say that I think that ideas are like almost a physical thing in a weird way. Like when you, all right, let's put it this way. And, and let me, let me preface this by saying that I don't look at myself as some prolific writer. I've written some songs in my life. I don't think that like, I'm not trying to say that I've written the most important songs in the world, but what I will say is that whenever I've written something that I thought was like, whoa, or it's something that a lot of other people enjoy. I feel very little ownership over that idea because I feel like, in the moment, all I was was a conduit for this other idea. I feel like I had the right disposition in the moment to get an idea. And then, like, 
I had a guitar in my hands or whatever. And or like I got the idea when I was walking around with my kids at fucking Universal and then I got on a guitar later and like I just had I was a conduit because I had the right attitude for it at the time. And I know that sounds like I'm trying to make guitar and music more existential than it needs to be. But that's that's definitely how I feel. I feel exactly the same way when I write music as well. I've also found that the the stuff that comes out naturally where I don't have to force it, I definitely have that feeling towards because I think we as guitar players often think that if something comes out good in the first instance and we haven't spent any time on it, that it's automatically crap. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, for, it usually is. yeah no no it's not like for example like on for the last for, on the last record vanta i wrote that in one sitting in six hours and at the end of that sitting i thought it was crap come back to it a few days later it's one of my favorite songs on the last record so i i, I actually think that writing music is often ta- down to time place mindset and then also what wes just said as well, like you're a conduit for something that's sort of floating around the air and you just so happen to be at the right point in time when it comes out. <laughs> so speaking of writing, can you talk a little bit about your process? Do you have a set process or is it just like you're playing guitar and then the idea appears out of the ether and you run with it? Or do you sit down to actually write? How does that work? So I do sort of have a process now. In the past, what I would do is I would like literally spend half a day trying to record some riff because I wanted, you know, like my, like my, my ego got in the way of like me wanting it to be perfect. And eventually what I would happen was like, I would burn out and like, you know, the vibe would escape me and I'd never get anything done. And then I had this hard drive that was full of like half or quarter done ideas. And what I do now is like, for better or for worse, if it's something that like I have an idea that's not technically totally under my hands yet, you know what I mean? I'll get it in there, even if it doesn't sound, you know, like if it sounds like 70 percent, I get it in there and then I keep arranging the song. And then, you know, 30 minutes or an hour and a half later, I have this four minutes of music that I can kind of whittle down and like, then I can judge it once a whole, once it's a whole thing, you know what I mean? Rather than be like, Oh fuck. You know what I mean? My pick angle wasn't great on that riff. Let me go and record it another 700 times, you know? And, um, yeah. (laughs) And then another thing which is weird is that when I feel like, like technically like really solid, like my chops are really sharp, rarely, does that line up with me being in the mood to write? It's fair. It's a bummer. It's a bummer that it is that way. Because like when I, like I was talking to a friend about this the other day, who's definitely written a lot of songs that are super, you know, like he's like a bigger songs. And he was like, yeah, dude, every time that I write my chops go to shit. And I was like, yeah, it's such a weird thing. So I guess in some way it's this constant battle of being able to like, the tradition of metal is to sort of hunker down and ratchet technique for a few years and come up with something that's, you know, explosive and exciting. You know what I mean? Like marrying that with it being like a cool idea and rarely do those two things align for me, but I'm working on it. I actually see that. The thing that I would always do is since you can't predict when an idea is going to come, I'd always just sit down to get better at guitar and some days no ideas would happen and those would just be practice days. And then sometimes 
would start practicing and then 30 minutes into it, the light bulb turns on. At that point, I would just ditch practicing and start writing and play that out if it took a day or two days or a week. And then once the well was dry, just go back to practicing. That would work for me. But what I noticed was the reason that I would do that was because I've not followed through on so many cool ideas that happened while practicing that started to bum me out. Like practicing some technique and then out of nowhere, this really badass thing happens. And then I'll be like, got to keep practicing. And only like down the road did I realize that I probably wasted a bunch of cool songs or didn't follow through on a bunch of cool songs that could have been. Yeah, I feel you. Brown, go ahead. I I know you're about to say something too. Basically, Wes then was talking about the songwriting versus, you know, uh, technique and practicing spectrum, which I see as like a a two-way thing. At one side, you've got songwriting and one at the other side, you've got technique. And we can really see this when it comes to the level of guitar players. Like, let's take, for example, the band Oasis. I wouldn't say that they were necessarily the most technical guitar players, but damn, they could write a song. And then on the other side of it, you have the guys that are exceptionally good at technique, but then a lot of their music doesn't do anything to me emotionally. And I think that there's this point in the middle where the overlap happens. And we see a lot of guitar players in the middle there. Like for me, John Petrucci's definitely in there where his technique is impeccable, but you can also write great songs. It's one of those things that sometimes it works and sometimes that it doesn't, you know, like focusing on technique, but you still have to let it reside a little bit to allow the the song to come out almost like how you're saying your chops when you do write songs aren't at their best. And I think that goes with the territory because I've seen that quite a lot. Yeah. It's also an issue of focus, right? You only have a hundred percent focus to give on something and writing is kind of an all consuming thing. Like you can't. Yeah. If you have a lot of shit going on in your life, a lot of times you're not going to sit down and go, I want to write, you know? Exactly. That's quite interesting, actually, for me, because I write my my best material when usually stuff is going on in my life. (laughs) I don't. But I mean, like when I'm writing, though, it's like 12 hours a day, like all day. That's all I can think about is this thing that I'm writing, like this thing that's being created. Can't sit there and be thinking about alternate picking. So I feel like if I'm going to write, like really write and go for it, that's going to take up all my brain power. And then when I'm done I'm completely exhausted from it and there's just no energy for the technical work. For me, it's just one or the other. I don't know if it works that way for you. Like I said, I'm getting better at balancing it. In the last few years, as I've sort of like reloaded the barrels and retooled it, I guess I could probably play now faster shit than I ever have. I guess I used to focus on technique a lot more. And as a result, I would be like really burnout and not stoke. So like, I guess back to that a little bit every day thing, I'll spend time in different spots in the house doing different things and, you know, hopefully end up being more well-rounded and have a fuller set of stuff in my barrels than, you know, in years previous. Cause we all know it's not real easy to be inspired to practice while you're on tour And I mean, not even that it would be that type of issue, but like how fucking often are you going to have a place to practice? I mean, sure. Of course, like if you're, you're, you're doing good and you know, 
you can wake up and everything's all taken care of for you, then for sure you've got, you got it. But like, how often have either of us sat down and been like, man, I'm going to burn like good six hour day before the show. Like, I'm going to just sit here and work on all my shit. You know, it just doesn't happen. Every time I tried to do that, it just didn't work. Yeah. You're trying to go to Chipotle or Taco Bell. Brown, you remember when I took you to your first Taco Bell? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Wes introduced me to Taco Bell, so... Uh, Taco I, Bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still What's this, Taco Bell? I'm just kidding. I know, you're English. <laughs> Called it Taco. Yeah, it's a taco, isn't it? Taco. No, no, it's a taco. Okay, fine, it's a taco. It's T-A-C-O, taco. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Wes introduced me to Taco Bell, and it was when I was uh, filling in on tour for Jake of Periphery in 2011. I met him in San Diego, I believe, was the first show. And we've been friends ever since that point. So that was nine years ago. But yeah, I will never forgive him for introducing me to Taco Bell because it is literally the worst food in the world. Are you kidding? <laughs> no way. It's. I'll tell you what's fucking worse than that is cookout all day. Cookout is the food that FEMA would like drop from airplanes <laughs> on fucking... Societies that were too violent to interact with. Yeah, what about White Castle? Like, White Castle is actually the worst. Yeah, I'll I'll put that at the top of the list. Yeah, Taco Bell is not the worst. There's far worse <laughs> than, than Taco Bell. I know that uh, you got to run soon. So before we wrap up, we've got some questions from our audience for you. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So first one from Andre Tenorio. What are the most valuable lessons you've learned about live performances and touring after playing in all these bands? Chief among them, that being hungover <laughs> will make everything way worse. I'm actually on a booze break. I've got just under 500 days now of not drinking. Congratulations. Good job. I don't know that, like, I'm, I'm not going to be one of those guys and, you know, like, recovery culture is great for a lot of people. I might drink again someday. But right now... It's made everything just better. My playing better. Life is just not weird to me and Brown. We're talking about this. It doesn't make life easier, but it makes it more manageable. So I'd say as much as it is super fun to go out there and, you know, cause drinking beer all day is fun as fuck. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Try to, try to hang back on that. Also, you know, if you're playing someone else's music, like your goal, like, you know, like recently this year alone, I've learned 27 songs and perform them live. I learned like 11 of Devin songs. Uh, I learned, I played with Thy Artist Murder off and on, like whenever Sean needs a vacation, I was filling in from them. So like learn songs and, you know, try to play it in a way that, you know, like you're representing it with the most respect that you can, because I mean, like the, those bands have fans for a reason. And as far as the live performance aspect, you know, and getting better. It's one of the things I enjoy most about touring is getting better as a performer and playing and, you know, identify tension, always be aware of the tension because like, you know, that's, that's what changes everything is you're out there in front of people and you're nervous and you're like, Oh fuck. And you tense up and you're like, why is this suck? And it's because you're nervous and you're, you got a bunch of tension. Sick. I've got a question here from Joel Moore. If you could go back in time and tell your younger self something about being a professional musician, what would it be? Manage your expectations. I would say that, like, I didn't really have super high expectations, you know? Like, things have changed so much 
you know, and there's a and there's so many bands out there. Got to kind of be if if you want to be happy and only play guitar and have enough money to do that or make enough money from doing that, you got to care about it all the time. And it's not like a normal job where you you can go home and like you know play Xbox and not think about that job anymore. Here I'm constantly thinking about this shit and working on this shit. So got to be obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I've noticed, man, about the lifelong badass guitar players that are 100% guitar employed, I know quite a few. The one thing that they all share is this collective obsession with it. Like, it does not go away. They end up incorporating other things like recording or video and all that. Sometimes they got to divert their attention a little bit for business reasons, but their focus is is the same as it was when they were 18. They're not 30-minute-a-day guys at all. They're max effort always. Yeah. I guess not to be trite, but, like, that whole idea of, like, you don't pick it, it picks you. I guess in another way of saying that is, like, if you like this shit enough or rather love this shit enough, you'll probably find a way to not have to integrate into like normal job life. You know what I mean? Like it's going <laughs> to suck for a while. Don't get me wrong. And it fucking, it's not going to be comfortable, but like at some point or another, you're going to figure out a way. I think that's really good advice actually. Cause obviously I think that Wes has done it. I've done it. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've done it. AI right at the beginning, you're broke as shit. I made negative money until I was 31. Yeah. I would probably say the same for me around that age as well. <laughs> yeah. Just throwing everything you got. I mean, I, I was homeless twice over the course of that time. So I think, yeah, managing your expectations and know, I think almost knowing what's inevitably going to come and just accepting it if that's what you really want to do. I think that's really good advice. Okay, here's a question from Kieran Giles. Hey man, great to meet you, Wes. Hope you're well. Just wanted to ask, how is it working with Devin Townsend? I love his personality and his vibe. He's just a lovely human. I agree with that, by the way. I do too. I do too. Still, it's funny. Like, you know, we're supposed to be out in Europe right now, but we've just been kind of like texting and back to sort of echo what I said about people being obsessed and, and, you know, caring about it all the time. That guy is, you know, been at this for so long. He's put out like 32 records. And like right now, that guy is making music every single day, you know, and like... Drinking coffee until he feels like he's about to vomit and then going and eating <laughs> and then making more music. Um, so, like, I'd say he's been a big inspiration in that regard. Like, you know, I always kind of knew this about him, but, like, knowing it more firsthand now and seeing how relentless he is with working is been a super big inspiration. And, I mean, like, it's also kind of strange the first time I saw Strapping Young Lad was at the House of Blues in Hollywood. Our rest in peace. I loved that place. But it was super joint ritual, Strapping Young Lad and full-blown chaos. And it was right as the self-titled record came out. So they were playing Aftermath and all this shit. And then I saw him in 2005 on Sounds of the Underground playing like Love, all this stuff off of Alien. And then this January, I was fucking playing all those songs on stage with with Devin led, I saw him, you know, play when I was like, you know, 20, 21 years old. And I was like, wow. Talk about one of those things that like you couldn't even make up. That was one of them. But yeah, it was great. Devin's great. Everything you've heard about him is true. 
He's great. He's an amazing human being. We got to tour with him in 2014. Phenomenal. Everything. And it's quite funny when he, like, he's one of those people where, you know, we were talking about something good comes when you don't necessarily want to focus on it as hard as you can. And I think that for him is singing because I remember he said to me that the only reason that he learned to sing is because he didn't want to have to deal with a singer. <laughs> yeah. I'll also say if people are fans of Devin, I did have him on the URM podcast episode 231. It's one of the coolest conversations I've ever had. We talk about Nickelback a lot. <laughs> yes. He worked with Chad. Yeah. I was going to say straight up, dude, it's become this colloquial, like, fun thing to shit on Nickelback, but, like, you know, for what they are, for their purpose, <laughs> they write excellent radio rock songs, and they have the best-sounding records of, like, the last fucking oh, yeah. 20 years. And I think, like, straight up, I think it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, people, especially newcomers to the whole joke, don't even know what they're hating on. I'm just kind of like, well, like, yeah, I don't own a Nickelback record, but... It's not like fucking terrible or anything like that. You I know would, what I mean? It's radio yeah. rock songs. like, And those mixes are the gold standard. Yeah, Randy Staub, right? Randy Staub who does those? Well, he did some of the earlier huge sounding ones for sure. The guitar tone is just insane on those records. Fucking huge. Fucking crazy. It's rectifiers as far as I know. That's what I've heard. One of the hardest amps to get sounding good through a mic. <laughs> oh, speaking of that, uh, like... To be honest with you, if you guys want to keep going for a little bit longer, I could geek out about amps if you want. Are you a modeler dude or are you using real shit? I'd say it's come back around for me. So for the most part, I guess everyone I've played with, well, majority of the people I've played with for the last 10 years or so have been the whole, you know, in-ears direct thing. And naturally, you know, in most cases, the most efficient way to do that is with a modeler. So I got into the amp and load box thing a few years back and started getting into miking cabs and started to really love that. And then being a Kemper owner has paired nicely with engineering guitar tones and kind of keeping this, you know, library of guitar sounds that I've gotten that are great. And I know Brown doesn't really like the Kemper. I'm going to get him a Kemper one day and like send him some stuff I've made. <laughs> Or at least get him to start making his own stuff for it, and then he'll like it. Kemper's great. What's wrong with you, Brown? I don't think he's tried anything that was like, you know, I mean, when you get the stock Kemper stuff, it's not, as far as the high gain stuff goes, it's not very exciting. I can actually explain this in vivid detail for you. Okay. This is the reason why I hate it anyway. So we recorded the last album at a studio called Treehouse Studio, which is owned by Carl Bone, who I believe has been on URM. Yes, He's fantastic. He is. Anyway, so his engineer is called Jim Pinder. And when we started, we brought 12 or so amps with us. And he's like, why don't we just use the Kemper? And so he turned on his Kemper. We tried a bunch of it. And I was like, eh. So then we set up loads of amps. And then he was so convinced that we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the real amp sound and the Kemper that had modeled our real amp sound. So then he goes and models the amp sound that we got. And both myself and Ollie were able to instantly tell which one was the real amp and which one was the Kemper when we played through it. Well, you guys are freaks because I've done that test on like at least 25 people and they never guessed right. The reason what it was for me is the dynamics. It was the way that the dynamics felt on the Kemper. Obviously we do loads of that scratching stuff. It felt like the Kemper was on 127 
at all the times. It didn't have that that squishiness. You know, the valve thing, that's kind of what it was. That's the only thing that I would have been able to tell off though, because tonally it was identical, but it's the way that it felt for me. And that's how it always is in everything in my life, really. How does it feel? I, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but the line six stuff does get it right. It's weird with the line six stuff. You just have to cut five kilohertz by a little bit. And it actually, well, especially the pod XT, which I still have, which I've owned for 13 years. There's just something about it. I don't know. They got something really right about it. I can't put my finger on it. It's a sample. You know, when you profile something, it's probably like a, what, 800 millisecond sample of the sound. And it's not going to behave like an amp. Like if you roll your volume knob down, you know, and you're trying to be like Andy Timmons, it's not really going to do that very well. But I've found it to just, you know, with all of the modeler stuff, every one of them, they're all solutions, right? They're all just, exactly. it's, it's a solution. So like you, you just got to find whatever solution feels best to you. And the camper has been that for me. It's a solution or an option, I think. I'd say it's a solution because I mean, for the most part, I'll say being an amp guy is at least in a live application is like a, a spoil that bands who play on big stages enjoy these days, right? Whereas like, Bands like mine, you got to get on and you've got like a 10 minute changeover and you got to get the fuck off afterwards. And you want to be a polite support act. So you got to, if you can have one box that you've got tempo specific delays in and like an array of sounds that you could recall real quick and there's not a ton of cabling and stuff, then that's why it's a solution. So yeah, I mean, it's a great solution, but I still have to take an amp to a gig. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. I wish Doth toured in the modern era because we used to take those refrigerator racks with like two heads inside of them and then rack gear and then multiple cabinets per guitar player. And it's just like we quit right at about the time that modelers were becoming a thing. And on the last tour we did, I took an Axe FX with a set of in-ears and uh, wow, it was really nice to be able to bring my entire rig on the plane with me. That was like revolutionary and to just set it up on stage and plug one thing in and good to go. That's unbelievable. No, I mean, I feel you like as far as Europe goes, if you're a new band, you're going to kind of eat shit for the first four or five times you go to Europe, you're going to lose money. So like, I'm going to try to make it as cheap as I can. I'm probably going to fucking do it with a camper every time. But for the States, I'm going out with amps. And I guess to circle back to your question here right now, I've got Omega Obsidian, which is like a, Sort of a flagship model for this company called Omega Amps, uh, Mike Smith. And he also makes cabinets. I mean, they were predominantly known for making guitar enclosures for a while, but they've gone into the amp foray. And I'd say it's my favorite all-around high-gain amp. It's two and a half channels. The clean on it is spectacular. You could play like West Montgomery songs on it. It's like a full frequency clean where it's like, you know, most time when you get a high gain amp, it's a pretty narrow, you know, utilitarian clean <laughs> channel. But this one's great. Uh, man, both the dirty channels are great. The effects loop's great. And been a big fan of the boogie stuff for five years now or so. Um, and I've gotten into the, I don't know if early 90s are actually considered vintage now. I might be. But like, I think, you know, I mean, dude, if the 70s stuff was considered vintage in the 90s, the 90s are vintage now. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. I would say so. <laughs> so I have so I have a '92 Revision F rectifier. I've been trying to find one for a very long time now. I kind of just discovered a few years ago that a rectifier with a good boost in front of it is sort of like that's the metal guitar sound that I've been looking for for a while. The boogie stuff is, you know, it's like straight up, you know, without a boost. The boogie stuff is kind of, you know, it's it's big. It's really saturated and unfocused. You know, it's a complex kind of big fat gain sound. But when you boost it, it's... I feel like as a result of it being that way pre-boost, it gives me a bigger option for carving out something new with it. Whereas if I were to take the newer style, kind of tighter and more hyped amps, they're already sort of decided upon. So, I mean, like if you boost it, it's just kind of in most cases, I'll say, going to get a little more narrow and you know, it'll, it'll throw some teeth on it, but it's not going to sound anywhere near as big. Like this Revision F is like a bully of amps. And um, I got it from Mark Tremonti kind of became like guitar friends a few years ago. And I went to his place and he has a fucking menagerie of sick amps. Like some of the sickest shit you've ever seen. He has like, yeah, I, I've been to his house. It's ridiculous. I feel left out. He has three Brown, three, two C pluses. What? Yeah. He has three of them. And he has, he had, he told me he sold it recently, but he had a Dumble, a steel string uh, singer. He had kind of, everything over there so when i went there i played this f and i was like dude like i gotta buy this whenever you're ready so i got it and then i got the rev g rectifier from him too and that's gonna be my live amp it's perfect for what i want and for the people who kind of say that the cleans on the old rectos are shitty or whatever I mean, it's definitely not like a Fender Twin or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a fucking yeah, it's not a Fender Basement, but it's also not that shitty either. I'm just gonna be. It's definitely better than the 5150 Rhythm Channel, isn't it? For <laughs> sure. <laughs> but then technically, that's not meant to be a clean channel. But yeah, yeah, and the the Triple Crown. That's the Triple Crown 100. Like that's probably the best amp that Boogie's made in a very long time. I just did a whole record with it that and the rectifier the new alluvial record has it's tc 100 and then a rectifier and did it all over at john's sick well did the guitar and bass tracking over at, at john douglas's so speaking of amps uh, i'm just curious your take how much of the tone is in the hands how much of it is in the guitar how much of it is in the pickups how much of it is in the amps i think that the bridge, the gauge of strings, and the pickup are your front lines. That's the front line of everything. Then once you start getting into scale length and like wood choice and construction, that's the line after that. Well, I mean, I should say the hands are the front lines and all this other shit's after that, but like in this order. And then the amp is like, I'd say really specific to how someone plays, which is why any one of us have a favorite amp and cab. For instance, I spent a good amount of time with uh, the Mesa JP2C, the John Petrucci amp. Yep. It's a cool amp, but like I couldn't get anywhere with it that superseded the ability for me to plug straight into a rectifier and like have it sound exactly the way I wanted to. And then I've seen like videos of obviously him, JP, making it sound incredible. And then there's a video I've seen of Yari from Winter Sun making it sound incredible. So like, yeah, I mean, the, the amp is almost like the, what party are you going to? 
you know? <laughs> I love your analogies, man. What <laughs> party are you going to? <laughs> the reason I'm curious, man, is because I definitely think that hands are the front line. We actually put out a guitar course at URM called Ultimate Guitar Production where we basically proved it. I mean, it goes super deep into all of those choices, but at the end of the day, if you don't have hands that work, none of that other stuff matters. And what bums me out is I feel like a lot of guitar players who are who want to play guitar, they want to get good, they get distracted by gear. They, they spend way too much time on gear and thinking about that stuff rather than burning with their hands, basically. Yeah, especially for playing a high gain, you know, in a high gain situation. The hand thing is not just the touch, right? It's not just the tip of your finger on the string and everything like that. It's a whole bunch of stuff that's dampening strings. It's the amount of pressure that you're applying, right? When you palm mute, it's the angle of your pick. There's like a, all of us would probably say that a pick material and thickness and I guess the point on it is like maybe the gnarliest EQ tool that you got, you know what I mean, with guitar? Fuck yeah, absolutely. You want to know what's so funny, man? When we put out Ultimate Guitar Production, we had a section on picks, like a 15-minute long pick shootout. Some of the people who bought it were arguing with us. They were like, I've been playing with this one pick for 15 years, and that's my tone, and uh, you can't tell me to play any different kind of pick. And it's like, dude, do you want to, like know how to get different tones and find the best thing for what you're playing or not. What the hell is wrong with you? Every single guitar player I know that's any good, any single producer I know who's any good at recording guitars knows that you got to have an assortment of picks and that every pick sounds completely different and has a completely different application. You can't just use one kind of pick always. I mean, unless you're a freak. I actually just use one type of pick all the yeah, time. Yeah, like I said, unless you're a freak. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only one reason that I use. And and let me just remind people that freaks are like a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. So you shouldn't assume that you're a freak. Like for me, it's not necessarily about necessarily how, how my pick sounds. It's just the one that I find the most comfortable, which then comes into, I just need to probably spend some time trying another one. <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. I was like, for a very long time, and I, this has probably been to my, I'd say almost with, with certainty that it's been to my detriment for a while. I was a jazz three guy, like starting out, I went to Charlie Daniels Music in Fresno, California, and found a jazz three, the green one. And I was like, this is awesome. And then like... This is another sort of misnomer, I think, sort of a crappy piece of information that we all got from those glossy page crappy guitar magazines is that you're supposed to hold your pick and just have a tiny bit sticking out. <laughs> what I just discovered later on in life is that, especially for any sort of two-way picks landing thing or crossing strings, like, that's the worst fucking advice ever because if you're changing this way, your thumb and you have no pick sticking out, like, two things are going to happen. Like your thumb is going to hit it. And also every piece of meat that you have that's dampening other strings needs to lift up because you're, you're so choked up on the pick that like your whole contact point for dampening is coming up. Like, so I have gone to the bigger, like Ultex T3 shape, which is like kind of like a 
normal size, like Stevie Ray Vaughan pick, but it's got a like kind of a jazz tip on it. And that's been probably my favorite pick, the 90s and the 73s. Those are my favorite ones. So obviously you've got your preference, but if you were in the studio with someone that really knew their shit and they were like, here, could you try this riff with this? Would you be like, nah, fuck you? No, I'd try it. Okay. I mean, I've got a ton of different, like, dude, I'm a junkie. Like, at any given time, I might have 30 fucking picks on my desk. Yeah. Case in point. Look, I think obviously every guitar player is going to have a preference. But I think that if you're a good guitar player (laughs) and a producer hands you a pick, even if you're not comfortable with it, all you got to do is play the riff for 10 minutes and you'll be comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of recalibrating. Yeah. It's just finding the nuances, isn't it? Like anything, like when you pick up a different guitar, there's some slight differences that you have to make adjustments for, like where's the best place to mute, where's this and that, and it's the same thing with amps. And yeah, it's just about working it out. And with with experience over the years, that just kind of comes with a little bit of experimentation and understanding that. I mean, it's the same with drummers, man. We're recording drummers, sometimes they come in with like pencil sticks. They just sound weak and... You make them play heavier sticks, but that's going to require some adjustment, especially if they play really fast or hard or something like that. It's They're going to have to work up to it. So give them an hour to get used to it. I mean, some dudes are going to just be able to adjust immediately, but not everybody will. They just got to recalibrate and then you're all the better for it. Exactly. That said, I think this is probably a good place to let you go, uh, do your thing, Wes. Well, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys. Likewise. Thank you. Pleasure hanging out with you too as well, man. It's been a long time. We covered a lot of stuff, and I guess let me know um, whenever you guys want to do this again. We can sit here and do this whole Edward Snowden thing from our caves. <laughs> <laughs> would love to have you back on. All right, guys. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next time. Well, that was a cool episode. Wes is cool. And I can't believe that he lives in my city and I didn't even know that. It just goes to show what a hermit I am. Social recluse you are. But I think like, that's never a bad thing. But yeah, Wes was a really, really cool guy to talk to. A really great guitar player. Lots of good insight. Yeah, I'm going to admit, I wasn't too familiar with his guitar playing before this. I mean, I was familiar with the fact that he's awesome and everybody I know considers him to be like top, top tier. But uh, before this podcast, I decided to learn about him, obviously, so that I knew who I was talking to. And I got to say that I agree. The dude is fucking phenomenal. It's quite funny that like he was saying that a few years ago, he was really unhappy with his playing. And then it's like he was phenomenal then. <laughs> so what's he like now? But th- this is this is why he's phenomenal. I have a theory because I, I remember talking to Jeff Loomis once when he was like 40 or 42 or something. And he was telling me that he doesn't think he's that good and that's why he's taking lessons. I was like, Jeff Loomis is taking lessons. <laughs> that's probably why he's good. Well, Incredibles, because he doesn't think he's that good and he keeps trying to get better. And I think all the dudes that I know who are that good, they don't believe their own hype generally. Like, I mean, they're proud of their accomplishments, but they're looking at how they can get better always. And they know that there's another level out there. They're always wanting to learn. Like if you think about it, that's what life is about. It's always the consistent want to learn. So if you ever feel like that you're the master of something, then... 
that's your ego getting in the way of what's actually entirely possible. Ego prison, because uh, the moment you start thinking like that is the moment you stop improving. Exactly. I know quite a few people who have done that. I think that's the kiss of death. I know that a lot of people on the outside will look at super accomplished people and say, you should just be happy with that. Why don't you just stop? Like anybody would be happy with that, but they didn't get to where they are by being satisfied. They actually got to where they are by being unsatisfied and by continuing to push it. Another thing he was talking about that was interesting to me was the physical stuff, because honestly, that's what prevented me from going further on guitar. I just always, like I said, I always felt like there was a physical ceiling and that ceiling was pain. <laughs> and it's probably from all the tension and wrong picking angles and stuff. I think it's also to do with focus as well. Like we're, we as guitar players and musicians in general are just so focused on the notes and what we're playing in that aspect. And we don't actually sit back and think about like what even just breathing properly can do for our guitar playing. It's really good once you get to that point where you actually understand all that stuff, what your body's actually doing or telling you in this particular instance and what you have to do to sort of work at it. It's like anything that's physical, like guitar is a physical thing. And when something's physical, it's beyond just playing the notes. Absolutely. How often do you cover that in Riff Hard? It's covered in the Tech Vault. I talk about it all the time in my one-on-ones. I talk about it in Q&As all the time as well. I mean, I think that at any point when, as a guitar player, when it comes to a hard section, we have this unique ability just to hold our breath because we're trying to concentrate. <laughs> so yeah, just like trying to push past, past those boundaries that maybe you haven't picked up on. Do you find that this is something that you have to work on with a lot of riff hard students? Like this is a problem that you frequently have to address? I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think addressing it as soon as possible is the best way for someone to become aware of it. Because there's, you know, there's certain things that you're just not aware of and that's where the experience comes in. What do your one-on-ones typically go like? It can be it can be a range of anything. Like the a couple of them that I've had recently have been listening to songs for some advice. Sometimes it's technique, why they're struggling to get past a certain BPM on a certain exercise. It can be to discuss pretty much anything. Even sometimes it's just a chat to make sure that people feel like they're going in the right direction. Just some advice on their career moves. Yeah, it's it's literally everything that you can imagine involved with guitar. Even some of the stuff that Wes was saying just earlier about how now as a guitar player, you need to know how to mix your music at least to a standard where it's acceptable for demos. Learn how to be a videographer at the same time so you can promote your stuff on the social media aspect side of it. Yeah, so it's just go into all those details, basically. How does a Riff Hard member go about booking one of those with you? If you just go on the site, I open it up on usually the first Monday of the month. There's an allocated amount of slots and yeah, first come, first serve. But it's just included with the membership. It's completely included. Yeah, you get to talk to me for 20 to 30 minutes. We get to, we get to shoot it, basically. And obviously, you know, first time that people do it, generally they're quite shy. <laughs> so I do, I go out of my way to make everyone feel as comfortable as possible because, you know, there's no need to be shy. I'm just a human being like anyone else and I just play guitar. <laughs> so basically, Riff Hard members, as long as they get in line at the right time of the month, get a lesson with you included with the membership. Yep. And it's every month. Every single month I open up 50 slots. Or if I have time for more, then I open up more. It's pretty sick. It's pretty fun as well, actually. Yeah, because you get to see where everyone 
is as well. It gives you kind of a record for me as well, not only because we have the group, obviously, but visually being able to see them that's not through a video and actually seeing them just, you know, in that moment, it really gauges about where they are as a guitar player. There's only so far you can get without good mentorship, I think. I think so too. You know, the guitar players that like Wes, for them, it's that they've worked all this out kind of by themselves. Well, he even said he had a great teacher though. He did for the first three or four years, but past that point, it's all been working out by going through different, I guess, almost formulas and trying different things to see what works for him. Getting pointed in the right direction, I think, is a really good way for people to make faster progress because you're not working a lot of that stuff out. Someone's already kind of done it for you, which in this case is me. (laughs) And I just try and point them in the direction that I think would greatly benefit them in a shorter space of time. Yeah, and I've, I've seen the results. Some of the videos that people are posting of their like improvement over the last few months is pretty ridiculous. Some of the improvements are absolutely insane. I didn't realize it was that easy to progress that quickly because it took me X amount of time because I was working shit out, basically. It's because you didn't have yourself to guide you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I wish I had my future self to tell my past self what to do. Yeah, story of life. Well, dude, it's been awesome. I'm looking forward to our next episode. Yeah, I am too. Awesome, man. Talk to you then. Talk to you then as well, man. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.